Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. The dark man's name was Randall Flagg. Those in the West who opposed him or went against his way of doing things had either been crucified or driven mad somehow and set free to wander in the boiling sink of Death Valley. There were small groups of technical people in San Francisco and Los Angeles, but they were only temporary. Very soon, they would be moving to Las Vegas, where the concentration of people was growing. For him, there was no hurry. Summer was on the downside now. Soon the Rocky Mountain passes would be filling with snow, and while there were plows to clear them, they would not be able to spare enough warm bodies to man the plows. There would be a long winter in which to consolidate. And next April, or May... Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, and I'm really glad you've returned to join me in this, the fourth part of my review of Stephen King's novel, The Stand. This podcast is really a chapter, not a standalone show. So if you haven't listened to the first three podcasts in the series, you may find yourself a little lost. In parts two and three, I really analyzed all the main and strong supporting characters in the novel. But now it's time to look at these characters and their journeys as the next part of this novel's tale. Larry, Nadine, and Joe finally made it up to Dalgunquit, Maine, where they see a message from Harold, literally painted on a barn, directing any survivors to the plague center in Vermont. Excited at the thought of rejoining civilization, the three head back south, where they reach the center and find another note from Harold, pointing survivors towards Hemingford Home, Nebraska. This does add a nice element of literary irony to the story, during which Larry envisions Harold as a capable survivor and engages in a bit of fantastical hero worship, only to be shocked at the 16-year-old boy waiting for him at his destination. The travels are tough for all people involved, be it Nick's party or Stu's or Larry's. All three pick up more people along the way, but there's also more self-centered people looking to rob or rape any passersby. In the extended edition, Stu's group even happens upon a group of men compiling an unwilling harem. It's a bleak thesis on the human condition, but all too realistic if you think of the looting and other advantages that would be taken if law enforcement broke down entirely. We even get to see this trip from a dog's point of view. In a precursor to Cujo, King writes of Kojak's travels to follow his new master Glenn from the dog's point of view. Kojak defies the odds and a pack of wolves to finally rejoin his masters. I said earlier these travels to Hemingford Home should really be part of book one, and that's because I still consider this part of the stand's strongest section. The cross-country trek may be a bit episodic and not as enthralling as when the plague was spreading, but that level of tension can't be maintained. In the first quarter of the book, King gave us characters we cared about, and now we see them in this dystopian near future struggling to survive. Yeah, it is bleak, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel, the beckoning and reassuring presence of Mother Abigail. More, with the introduction of the malevolent magician flag, King is taking the book's tension to a different plane. Now, instead of an unstoppable flu killing people, there's an adversary, a person with evil intent looking to harm or kill our heroes. But if there's an adversary, there's something to overcome, and at this stage of the novel, Flag poses no real threat. He's simply a motivating factor that keeps the crew rushing to get to Mother Abigail as quickly as they can in the gridlock-jammed interstates of post-apocalyptic America. Yet the Dark Man himself and his entire crew are mostly absent from book two. I mentioned earlier that much more ink was given to our heroes than the villains in this story, and in book two, I really miss Randy Flagg, Lloyd Henry, and the crew. 
The only real evil character, though he's more chaotically insane than actually evil, is the trash can man and his long trek to Las Vegas. In Trash's deranged mind, he's heading to Sibola, the fabled city of gold that 16th century conquistadors claimed was in the desert of what's now the American West. Trash's journey is perhaps the single biggest change in the abridged version, as it wasn't just shortened, but one character was removed entirely and replaced with another. In the unabridged version, King's original manuscript, Trash hooks up with a character who calls himself the Kid, who plans to dethrone Flag when he gets to Vegas. Trash first starts to use the Kid for a ride to Nevada, but soon the Kid's insanity makes itself clear. Not only does he sodomize Trash with a loaded pistol, his driving almost sends them off the edge of a cliff. Trash tries to escape through the Eisenhower Tunnel, a dark mirror of Larry's earlier trek through the Lincoln Tunnel, but Trash's fear is too great and he has to return to the insane kid. Finally, Trash is rescued by a pack of wolves sent by Flag himself. In the abridged version, this is all entirely cut, and instead of Trash getting a ride from a kid, he gets a ride from an old man. But the old man dies of a heart attack. The bit where the kid was almost driving off a cliff was transported to this old man, and the stress killed him. The kid's absence is noticeable to me, though, in the shorter version, as the kid's body is found in both the abridged and unabridged versions of the book. In the abridged, it's just a mysterious bit of ominous carnage, a man killed by wolves. In the uncut version, that makes a hell of a lot more sense. In interviews, King stated he was really excited to reinstate the kid as a character in the novel. He said the kid was intended to be a complete reincarnation of Charles Starkweather, and he liked having that evil presence in the book. Now, I disagree with that. I may not know enough about Starkweather to see the parallels in the kid that King's bringing, but I see the kid as an annoying character, with another overused catchphrase. You believe that happy crappy? That said, earlier in the book, it was written that Starkweather and Flag were high school classmates, and there's something enticing about the idea of Starkweather going to overthrow his old partner in evil. It's a good idea, but not made clear enough on the book itself. In truth, all of this trashy subplot pales in comparison to our hero's trials on the road. And it's here I notice that the book is starting to lag. In all of book one and the start of book two, it felt that King was writing a series of short stories that took place in this shared world of disease and death. But by this point, midway through book two, the tales are really starting to feel redundant. And the simple fact is, book two of The Stand is too damn long. It doesn't matter if you read the abridged or the unabridged version, it's still too damn long. When King was told to cut 400 pages from the book, it really should have all been from book two. Yet, outside of Trash Can Man and the Kid and the Roman Gang of Sex Slavers, very little of the cuts were from this middle section. Most of the cuts were made in book one, making me wonder if King literally started reading at page one, cut all he could, and as he drew closer to his 400-page goal, he slowed down what he cut. When he hit 400 pages, he just stopped cutting completely. Things do improve somewhat for the evildoers when Trash finally reaches the destination of Vegas. Here, through Trash's viewpoint, we see what Flag's been doing in the city. Not only do we see Lloyd again, but a number of men who make up Flag's inner circle. We don't see much, but I hang on to it. I think it's a mistake that King gives us so little. In book one, we were introduced to Trash, Lloyd, and Flag as we were to Stu, Nick, and Fran. Now, King's putting the dark man behind a curtain. The good guys talk endlessly about Flag and his camp. They theorize that Flag may be setting up weapons and planning their destruction, but it's all just talk and conjecture. There's nothing to base their fears upon. In truth, all the good people have a shared nightmare of a dark man, and that's all they have. Flag never mobilizes troops. He never sends an army from Vegas to attack the good folks. 
It truthfully could be read during book two that what we consider the good guys are a bunch of paranoid lunatics starting a preemptive strike against a man who may not mean them any harm. Now, book three takes the story places that undo that reading, but during book two, I couldn't help but think of the heroes as overly suspicious fools. In the unabridged version of the story, we do get a hint at the evil of Flag's regime. Any drug use is punishable by death. And not just any death, death by crucifixion. In his first days in Vegas, Trash is forced to aid in the crucifixion of a man who he had recently befriended. And it shows that Flag's Vegas may be a good place to live, but you have to follow Flag's rules. The other insight that Flag isn't a nice guy is when he finally returns and greets Trash, giving the pyromaniac the order he's awaited his entire life. Flag says, quote, I'm gonna set you to burn. End quote. But for the rest of book two, we stay with our heroes. I believe much of this is intentional. In Lord of the Rings, Sauron is a malevolent eye in Mordor, a description given to Flag as well as he has the ability of farsight. King writes of Flag searching for Mother Abigail, and the book says, quote, and suddenly an eye had opened in all that darkness, rolling horribly from one side to the other while the wind moved lonesomely through the pines and the blue mountain spruce. It was him, and he was looking for her. End quote. In this way, it's very clear. Flag is to the stand what Sauron is to Lord of the Rings. And in Tolkien's trilogy, Frodo and Sam toil on their way without really knowing what plot Sauron has prepared. Likewise, our heroes speculate on what Flag may be doing without really knowing. But there's one vital difference between Sauron and Flag. Sauron is a bit more effective in waging war on Middle-earth than Flag is on Boulder. In Tolkien's story, the Dark Lord is mobilizing an army and staging attacks, first to get the ring and then on various towns. Sauron is a visible threat, even without physical form, because he commands large hordes of orcs. Flag has no such army. He just has some ex-convicts and some techies. King needed to build this up a bit more than he did. He gave Flag the eye of Sauron, but not the army. And so for that, Flag is lesser. And speaking of Lord of the Rings, it turns out that Hemingford Home would be nothing but the Rivendale of this story, a brief stopping point on the journey of our heroes. Nick, Tom, and Ralph are the first to reach Mother Abigail's farm, but no sooner have they arrived than Mother tells the newcomers that God has ordered them to leave and go to Boulder, Colorado. Now that's a bit of a dirty trick, for Mother has been visiting people for months in their dreams, saying, quote, you come see me anytime, boy, and bring your friends, end quote. Yet anytime must really mean before August, because the moment she has a ride, she's packing them up and leaving. Now, I'm being flippant in my description. As King writes it, Mother Abigail doesn't want to leave her home. She was born on that farm, and she hoped to die on that farm. Her going to Boulder wasn't an upgrade for her, but she was making that sacrifice because it was God's will. Yet, I know if I was Stu, Fran, or Larry having journeyed thousands of miles to Nebraska, I'd be pretty pissed off to find a note that says, Gone to Boulder. From a plot perspective, I can understand why they wouldn't stay on the farm. Mother Abigail's people grow very quickly. By the end of Book 2, thousands of people have congregated in Boulder. They couldn't all live on Mother Abigail's farm, the old woman slaughtering chickens nightly for their food. A larger town was needed with more houses and resources to sustain the growing survivor population. Additionally, Boulder is right on the edge of the Rocky Mountains, the natural structure that divides Flag's land from the rest of the country. Everything west of the mountains belongs to the Dark Man. Positioning themselves in Boulder puts Abigail's people close enough to force the confrontation. In the books, some of the residents actually think they should move as far away from Flag as possible, but Mother says Flag will find them wherever they go, so they decide to stay close. And from the perspective of this as an American novel, I actually like the idea that all our main characters, save for Nick, 
Start in New England and then work west, first to Nebraska, then Colorado, and eventually Nevada. Like the settlers of America, the crew starts on the East Coast and slowly works their way west until they end up in this frontier town where they must dig in with virtually no technology to aid them. Finally, though, I see a significant outside-of-the-book's reality reason for the action to take place in Boulder, as compared to Denver or Albuquerque or even Castle Rock. Yeah, look it up. There's no town called Castle Rock in Maine, but there is a Castle Rock, Colorado, just 60 miles south of Boulder. And as I said at the beginning of this review series, King had moved his family to Boulder and he set The Shining in a Colorado resort. King is an author who writes what he knows, and when he started The Stand, he knew Boulder very well. More, he had five primary and secondary characters trek from Maine to Boulder. Fran and Harold started the journey, and then they were followed by Larry, Nadine, and Joe. This is the trek King, his wife Tabitha, and their three children made to move cross-country, and now his characters were literally following the author's path. But it's in Boulder that King's story really hits a wall. Having read the book three times this year, five times in total, I can clearly see the exact moment this story starts to unravel, and it's midway through book two. King used every bit of his skill setting up this post-apocalyptic world and populating it with survivors I enjoyed reading. But then, it's quite clear as a reader, King had no idea what to do with them. This was an insight I didn't need research for. It is clear reading this book. When the stand started, King had floored the gas on a Mack truck. Yeah, that large beast took some time to get maximum speed, but it got there quickly and then plowed like a juggernaut through the story. But around the end of book one, that truck ran out of gas but it still had enough momentum to go pretty far at a good clip. By the time the characters get to Boulder, it's like King had gotten out of the driver's seat, walked around the back, and started to push to try to keep things moving. And it's just not working. And as a reader who's enamored with the world King crafted, it's really hard for me to say this, but reading this part of the book is like watching an elderly relative succumb to Alzheimer's. This novel, once so smart and full of vigor, has forgotten who it is and what it came here to do. How is this visible? Through the actions and the inactions of the characters. At the start of the novel, we witnessed characters fighting for their lives, struggling for their survival, escaping death at every turn. Now we witness these same characters, um, forming an ad hoc committee to create a temporary government? They ratify the Bill of Rights and sing the national anthem. They work at getting power restored so they don't all freeze to death in an early boulder snow. They even form some work crews, one to gather the dead bodies and move them out of Boulder before they start to spread diseases, and another to move the abandoned cars off the streets. What's more exciting than seeing aldermen at work? At their worst, these chapters are about as enthralling as a fictionalized version of C-SPAN. Yet, while we get meeting minutes and blow-by-blows of town hall meetings, it seems that even in the unabridged version of the story, huge opportunities are missed. For example, we get to see Mother Abigail, the religious matriarch of what they've named the Boulder Free Zone, and she greets newcomers to the town. Through this, we watch as Larry and Nadine and Joe join the community, and the first time Larry meets up with Harold, the man who Larry had followed this whole way. But yet, we never see Stu, Fran, Glenn, and Harold arrive in Boulder. I would think the introduction of Stu to Nick would be a momentous occasion. These two stalwart heroes coming together, it's like Jimmy Stewart and Gary Cooper, Mother Abigail would have had to have helped establish their roles in this community. She'd been dreaming of those two the most. Yet, it's all done off-page. In both the abridged and the unabridged version, we have a big jump. Stu and his group are in Joliet, Illinois, 
And that's when Stu and Franny decide to give in to their mutual attraction and have sex, not knowing that Harold can see them and is growing more and more pissed. But then, two chapters later, the group's arrived in Boulder and Glenn is saying 1,500 people will be there soon and 4,500 by the end of October. That's quite a jump. And by the time we get there, they already know Nick. They've already been introduced to Mother Abigail. And we get to see none of it. One chapter arrives, and suddenly Stu and his group are not only in Boulder, but well-established in the community. Given that I'd watched them trek so far and try to make it to Boulder, it would have just been nice to see them arrive at the city and have that moment of joy. We are robbed of that. But of course they're part of the community, because who else is going to head up this new government of the Boulder Free Zone? Our heroes, utilizing Glenn Bateman's sociology knowledge that borders on precognition, stack the deck to ensure they rule the city. Like the worst of politicians, Glenn, Stu, Nick, and Fran think they need to be shepherds to the flock, and they are self-appointed, not nominated by Mother Abigail. They're in fact worried about Abigail's place in the community, if her religious fervor makes her too powerful to the people coming to Boulder, and if she might set them all off on some holy crusade. Now, Nick, Stu, Fran, and even Glenn being members of this new government isn't a shock to a reader, they're our main characters. Larry is also a late addition to the crew, also not surprising given his importance to the story. Yet, also joining this committee is Ralph, the farm boy who's barely a character in the novel. The even more shocking addition to the committee is Susan Stern. In the abridged version, this is whiplash-inducing, as she's just a woman who came in with Stu's group. In the unabridged version, we see Susan had a hard time after Captain Trips. She was one of the sex slaves rescued by Stu and his group. But she's still an underdeveloped character whose place on the committee is surprising to me as a reader. And this is a symptom of the diamond-shaped storytelling I described King using. He continued to add and add characters to the story, but here in book two, the novel is overstuffed with new and minor characters. Throughout book one, the main and secondary characters were introduced one at a time. We got to learn about them and their history. There were dozens of minor characters, but they all died of the flu. King kept focus, so we knew who was important very quickly. But now King keeps introducing us to new people, like Dick Ellis, a veterinarian who becomes the town's first doctor. Or Laurie Constable, the town's first nurse. There's Brad Kitchener, the man who knows enough about power plants to help turn the electricity back on. Then there's George Richardson, a real MD who knocks Dick down to the rank of paramedic. Then there's Charles Impening, the town complainer who completely disagrees with everything the Free Zone Committee does and then disappears forever, probably leaving the Free Zone behind to join Flag's folks in Vegas. But we never find out. He's not important enough for us to follow to Vegas, just important enough to take part in this overly long, totally dull establishment of the Free Zone government. Hey Charlie, if you're heading to Vegas, can you take me with you? I really don't want to spend any more time in this Free Zone government C-SPAN chapter. Characters do undergo a bit of personal growth here. Larry even finds himself with a wife, Lucy Swan, a woman he met on the trip. Lucy is enamored with Larry, but knows he's still hung up on Nadine. And at one point, Larry makes the romantic proclamation, I love you as much as I can, Lucy. While this does show Larry maturing, he's being honest with Lucy versus telling her what he thinks she wants to hear, I wish that King focused on it a bit more versus Lucy coming out of nowhere, even in the longer version. The vast majority of Boulder's populace are just nameless background, but King takes the time to introduce us to far too many newcomers. Worse, the established main characters start to act like totally different people. I understand that trying times bring out the best or the worst in people, and that such a drastic life change can cause personalities to transform, but what happens to the main characters is downright disappointing. 
Stu, the allegedly laconic, pragmatic Southerner, spearheads the ad hoc committee with his friend Glenn. Stu was described as the quietest man in Arnett. Now he's handily giving speeches in front of everyone in Boulder. More, he's designated the sheriff of Boulder, though he has no experience in that realm. It was Nick who was deputized during the fall of Shoyo, Arkansas. Nick's arc could have included promotion to sheriff of Boulder. Instead, Nick becomes totally lost as a character as he becomes Ralph's roommate and a constant strategizer on the Free Zone Committee. Strong Fran is often overruled at the committee meetings, and being a woman, of course she's given the task of being secretary and minute taker of the group. And this section really starts to establish Fran as a useless character rather than the strong, independent survivor we first met. Now six months pregnant, she's prone to emotional outbursts and then blames everything on the hormones. When she's not complaining, she spends most of her time making love to Stu and doing the laundry, and if that's her only role, I don't know why she's on this committee at all. Only Glenn and Larry stay true to themselves in this arduous portion of the novel. The sociologist remains the smart, ironic, insightful fellow he is, and Larry, still full of self-doubt, wondering if he deserves to be a leader of this new town. But no sooner has the committee been formed than they start about reinstating acts of espionage and war. The committee decides to send three spies over to do reconnaissance on Flag's Vegas base. They choose two extraordinarily minor characters, an old man named Judge Ferris who came in with Larry, and a bisexual woman, Dana Jurgens, another of the women rescued with Sue from sex slavery. The third spy is the most unusual choice, Tom Cullen, nominated by his good friend and traveling companion, Nick. Nick's argument is akin to, it's so crazy it just might work. I wonder if King's like, Tom can't be on the committee because he's intellectually challenged, so we need something for the character to do. Due to his mental disability, they use hypnosis to ensure Tom has his orders, including killing anyone who may discover him. Even under hypnosis, Tom seems to resist the order to murder, but he follows the commands and goes off to Vegas. And we don't see any of the spies again after they leave Boulder until book three, robbing us of even that insight into Flag's regime. More, none of the spies bring home any information. It's almost useless that they were sent at all, though Tom's geographical location is important later. When things get really complacent, King does try to shake things up by having Mother Abigail leave Boulder in the night. The old woman had basically become Queen of Boulder as all the residents and new arrivals worshipped her, but with this new status, Mother Abigail loses her connection to God. And when she reflects back on why, she's told she indulged in pride, one of the seven deadly sins. This is another turn that comes a bit of a shock and out of character. It really isn't built up to, and we, the reader, don't see Mother Abigail defy God for her own vanity. The closest she comes is a single instance in the novel where the old woman first meets Nadine. The two have a tete-a-tete, -tete and Mother Abigail is on the verge of figuring out Nadine's role, but she's scared, and she decides instead to greet other people. That may be pride, it may be old age, it may just be human. But due to this weakness, this pride, Mother Abigail leaves Boulder to go out alone with no supplies in the wilderness. It really is an unexpected twist, and I'm not sure King justified it in the novel. While I get that it parallels the biblical story of Moses fallen from grace and forbidden to enter the promised land, I just never saw Mother Abigail take credit for God's miracles as Moses had. I know there were hints there, but none blatant enough to foreshadow this anfractuosity. That said, King uses this opportunity for some truly insightful biblical analysis. In the stand, he writes, quote, The father of sin was theft. Every one of the Ten Commandments boiled down to, Thou shall not steal. Murder was the theft of a life, adultery the theft of a wife, covetedness the secret slinking theft that took place in the cave of the heart. 
Blasphemy was the theft of God's name, swiped from the house of the Lord and sent out to walk the streets like a strutting whore. She had never been much of a thief, a minor pilferer from time to time at worst. The mother of sin was pride. Pride was the female side of Satan in the human race, the quiet egg of sin, always fertile. End quote. There's something to that analysis of the commandments and biblical morality and King's exploration of that theme is some of the most thought-provoking writing in book two. Yet, while it may make for a great thesis for a paper in a college ethics class, I'm not sure it classifies as entertaining writing the way book one did. More, if King wanted to shake up the town by having Mother Abigail, the good witch of the East, leave, he failed. King is often described in interviews as writing process, and it's not plotting. In his mind, he doesn't force his characters to do anything. He creates characters that, to him, are as real as his next-door neighbors. He then creates a scenario where these characters must face some evil. After that, King just writes true to the characters and how they would react in those circumstances. He avoids making his creations act in certain ways just to move the story. Often, he's described that he's shocked to see some characters live or die. For example, in Salem's Lot, he said he was surprised Ben Mir survived the vampire attack. When he started writing the book, King thought everyone would perish. Yet it wasn't King himself that said Ben should live. He wasn't sitting there thinking an audience or reader would be happier if Ben survived the book. In King's mind, Ben simply did survive, as if to King, Ben was a real person. At least that's how he describes it again and again. Well, in The Stand, I think King became a victim of this. Mother Abigail left and the townspeople he created didn't riot. They didn't despair much at all. It turned out they were a mostly pragmatic people who had, thanks to the superflu, become accustomed to seeing important people leave them and die. As such, with the ad hoc committee created and ready to govern, Boulder continued their process of turning back on the lights and reestablishing government. That Mother Abigail was no longer there was a trifling concern at best. Outside of politicking, the primary plot threads covered in the second half of Book 2 are just continuing to explore the characters of Harold and Nadine. Harold had been extraordinarily bitter about Fran falling in love with Stu and had originally planned to murder the Texan hunk. He was even more angry when the ad hoc committee formed and Harold's name wasn't on the list. But Harold held all that hate deep inside, adopting a used car salesman persona on the outside, always smiling, happy, and helpful. While keeping his enemies closer, Harold plotted his revenge when something unexpected happened. He became a valued part of the new Boulder Free Zone. He was seen as hardworking and intelligent and looked up to by many. He was even given the nickname of Hawk. Now, I mentioned earlier I felt Harold's character could go either direction to the good or evil side. Here, King actually takes Harold to his most depraved and insane, and then starts to pull him back out the other side. And again, going back to King really just writing the characters to what they do, King has said in interviews he didn't know Harold's fate when he wrote the story. He honestly thought the teen could have reinvented himself, but he held on to his old grudges. Yet here, perhaps because King thought Harold could be redeemed, I did too. There's also an inspired bit of writing in this section when Harold is wrestling with his own demons. Harold had lived his life ignoring what people thought of him, that he was fat or that he was queer. But now that he was accepted, he thought, quote, Because consider, if you were strong-willed enough to be able to resist the low opinions of others when they thought you were a queer or an embarrassment or just a plain old bag of shit, then you had to be strong-willed enough to resist... Resist what? their good opinion of you? Wasn't that kind of logic? Well, that kind of logic was lunacy, wasn't it? End quote. The deeper King gets into Harold's mindset as he tries to decide if he should become the man he's pretended to be is one of the few interesting threads of the second half of book two. 
yet Harold's evil ways are being discovered. On the trip to Boulder, Fran kept a private journal in which she said nasty things about Harold and discussed her love for Stu. Harold stole that journal and read it while eating his candy bars, the fat slob leaving a chocolate fingerprint on one of the pages. Finding this print makes Fran instantly suspicious of her hometown companion, and so not once but twice she breaks into Harold's house looking for some evidence of nefarious intent. The second time she's even convinced Larry to join her. They do find Harold's own journal, and tit for tat, Fran reads Harold's private thoughts as the boy read hers. But this is long and drawn out, and actually has no bearing on the events of the novel. Everything would have happened the same way had Fran left well enough alone. Less interesting is the return to Nadine's character, also wrestling with her place in this book. After hundreds of pages of Nadine being chased, refusing Larry's advances, and generally being a crazy bitch, she decides for reasons unexplained to abandon her destiny as well. She realizes if she wasn't a virgin, not pure as the book puts it, then Flag will have no use for her and she can stay in Boulder with the others. As such, Nadine decides to seduce Larry. Of course, Larry is now married to Lucy and together they're raising Joe, who's returned to a normal, though psychic, talking boy named Leo. In this way, perhaps Nadine reaches her most realistic point. I think most people know that one drama queen in their life, be the male or female, that one person who usually brings with them a complicated romantic relationship, the man who only wants to sleep with married women, the woman who only wants a guy she can't have. In this respect, though she does it due to demonic betrothal, Nadine comes across like any other hot mess that thrives on stirring up drama. And in this way, Nadine helps Larry finally transform into the nice guy we readers knew he was. Lucy had accepted that Larry was with her as a second choice, and when Nadine comes to sleep with Larry, Lucy feels the shoe is dropped. But Larry resists the urge to sex the more attractive woman. He remains faithful and chooses Lucy at last. I'm not sure Lucy deserves a man who started being with her because she was available and the best option in the end of the world, but at least Larry remains committed and turns Nadine away. Now, if these are the most interesting plots in the middle of book two, you can tell King was just treading water. Book 2 says it encompasses about two months, from July 5th to September 6th. <laughs> That's funny. I thought it was eternal. It really is only the excitement I felt with the first third of this book that buoyed me through this section and had me keep reading. And when I read this novel for the third time in a row, well, I'm happy to say this section didn't get worse. It's always been this bad. Not only did this section of the book almost kill my reading experience, it almost killed the entire book for all readers everywhere. King knew. He knew when he was writing this that he was stuck. King has said in interviews he's only had total writer's block, an inability to write anything, twice in his life. First was after Carrie, and the second time was after Tommyknockers. Yet he has at other times referenced smaller portions of writer's block when the story he's working on becomes stuck. He says he'll often put those manuscripts in a drawer and move on to something else, and the stories in that drawer rarely see completion. Had King followed his usual pattern, the stand would have ended up in a drawer and the novel would have never been released. He has, in some interviews, stated that the stand did go into a drawer and he moved on and tried to write two other stories, Welcome to Clearwater and The Corner, neither of which were ever finished. No, King had a nagging urge to not give up on the stand. It's only the sheer volume of pages King had written that made him persevere. He said in interviews that had he only written 400 or so pages, he may have given up on the stand. But with over 500 pages of the novel done, he felt compelled to try and figure out a way to fix the problem. As such, King did something very unusual for the author. He stopped writing. He took long walks and examined the problems with the novel, 
and he's talked candidly about this in interviews and in his book Dance Macabre and on writing. And his problems were very similar to my own. King has stated the politics of the free zone bored him. I think that comes through in spades. King had fun destroying the world, and I had fun reading it. Now, King was bored with politics, and I was bored as hell reading it. King had other problems as well. The heroes were rebuilding society. It was Flag's people who were supposed to be setting up technology again, and the good folks who were supposed to realize the trappings of modern convenience and eschew it. Instead, the good guys were just walking the same path as the bad guys, only slower. When King thought of the phrase, once every generation a plague shall fall amongst them, he saw in that a way to discuss the evils of technology. If anything, his idea with the stand was to be a condemnation of McDonald's drive throughs computerized records, and primetime television. Yet there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that if the power went out, my goal would be to turn it back on. If there were no radio stations, I'd start one. If there was no TV, I'd work at getting the signals back online. No matter how much King wanted the characters to get back to basics, the bell of technological advancement can't be unrung. Good or evil, people will still want heaters to keep them not just comfortable but alive in winter. People will want hospitals to cure them when ill. People may complain about paying taxes, but they want paved roads on which to drive, untainted food to eat, and a steady stream of entertainment that comes not just from books, but from plays, movies, music, and television. But in King's words, this was, quote, the wrong thing for them to be doing. This is what got them into this mess in the first place, end quote. So King's characters, good and evil, started to return America to the status quo. And, lo and behold, it was dull as shit. And again, I'm going to fault King here. In multiple interviews, he discussed how the book was becoming problematic and that he grew bored with the politics and that he needed a radical solution. Yet of all the ideas he contemplated on all those long walks, did he never think about taking three steps back and starting over in Boulder? It may go back to King's viewing of his characters as real people. Perhaps at this stage in his writing, he gave them too much freedom, including the freedom to be boring. And honestly, perhaps the limit was strictly technological. This was 1976 or 1977. There were no word processors. He couldn't turn on document versioning, nor could he multi-select the past hundred pages and just hit delete. Perhaps he felt he had written this, he just had to keep it. But as amazing as book one was, as good as the first part of book two had been, I wouldn't fault any reader who got to this section of the book and said, forget it, and just gave up reading. In the original writing, King should have rewritten this entire section. Let other characters form this useless government and keep the pressure up from flags so there's an air of menace to the free zone populace. And even if he didn't cut these pages when originally writing, when King was ordered to remove 400 pages from the novel, he should have started right here, three quarters of the way through book two, and worked outward. I'm reminded of what George Lucas said. In an interview describing the original Star Wars trilogy, he described it like any three-act adventure. He said act one was when you introduce the characters. Act 2 puts the characters in a situation they can't possibly win. And then Act 3, they somehow overcome the challenges and win anyway. It's a classic three-act structure that Lucas described. Well, King took that and rearranged it for the stand. Book 1 had the characters introduced during a situation they can't possibly win. Book 2 moved them places. And then Book 3 has the showdown. Yet, Lucas's description is very apt for The Stand if you view the reader and not the characters as the protagonist. In The Stand Book 1, readers are introduced to characters. In Book 2, readers are in a situation they cannot win. Extreme boredom. But I'm very happy to say 
for that readers who stick it out and sludge through a few hundred pages of politicking, Fran committing, breaking, and entering without telling her husband the sheriff, and trash can man getting a gun up his asshole. Well, folks, there's a reward in book three. King pulled it out and got the book back on track. After weeks of working on the problem, King realized he had to shake up his characters again. Really, he said in an interview, he wanted to, quote, recreate the plague, blow them all up, end quote. After a week or two of not writing The Stand, usually the death of his novel, he realized he had the answer with that flippant turn of phrase. Blow them all up. There were too many characters and they were too complacent. He was going to literally set a bomb off underneath them. Suddenly, things became very clear to the author. I mentioned that he knew this book would be titled The Stand, but he didn't know what that stand would actually entail. The bomb made it clear. I also quoted King as not knowing if Harold would redeem himself as part of Boulder or if he'd fall to the dark side. Now Harold's fate was set. He'd be the one to make the bomb and get his revenge on those that hurt him. Even Nadine ends up having a purpose. She communicates with Flag and becomes Harold's seducer. She offers him the physical love that all other women had denied him. Now, she can't have vaginal intercourse because that's being saved for Flag, but the extended edition of the book makes it very clear that she opens her hand, mouth, and ass to Harold. Yes, between Trashcan Man and Nadine, the unabridged version of The Stand could carry a sticker proclaiming, Now with more sodomy! Nadine not only seduces Harold physically, but emotionally, saying Flag wants Harold to make the bomb and then join him in Vegas. So in some ways, Harold may be this novel's golem. He assisted Stu and Fran and the others on their journey, hiding his madness. But when it matters, Harold's own greed and vanity will cause him to attack and nearly kill those he helped. Harold's previous crisis of conscience is almost equal to the Gollum Smeagol internal tug-of-war from the Tolkien epic. And so, in the midst of one of the boring-as-hell government meetings, Harold detonates his bomb. Believe it or not, the build-up to the bombing isn't as exciting as it might seem. Harold, frustrated by Nadine's one restriction on their sex play, becomes a real jerk to her. He even at one point cuts her off from sex, which is really a bit of an out-of-character move, given that the whole novel, Harold had been lustful and wanting sex. I suppose that through Flag, Harold found something more important than sex. Acceptance. And to be accepted, he has to blow up some people he didn't like to begin with. As King writes earlier in the novel, no great loss. Even in the extended edition, I believe Nadine agrees to participate in this mass murder a bit too easily. While, as written, it's obvious King wanted Nadine to become a murderer from early on in the book, she seems to have very little struggle with it when the time comes. She was so sure murder was the one thing she wouldn't do, that when she does, it's anticlimactic how she doesn't resist at all. But the bomb isn't as effective as it should have been. Harold's intent, Flag's goal, was that all seven members of the ruling committee of the Boulder Free Zone would die in one explosion. Here again, I go back to my theory that all survivors are a little bit psychic, as Franny has a strong premonition that they need to end the meeting and leave the house. It's never said why she feels that way, but somehow she knows something is wrong. However, simultaneously, Mother Abigail is found and returned to Boulder. Perhaps, once again, Mother was transmitting the psychic message to get out of the house based upon a message from God. King never provides any concrete answers. But thanks to the timing of Mother Abigail's return and Fran's insistence that they leave, only a few people are killed in the blast. Of those, only two are committee members, and of those, only one mattered. Yeah, Sue Stern died in the blast, but I never knew why she was on the committee to begin with. She might as well have been wearing a red shirt the entire time. Also dead in the blast was Nick Andros. Nick didn't flee the house with his friends, instead going to find the bomb Nadine had hidden in a messy closet. I think King saw this as the ultimate irony, 
The bomb was detonated by Harold's voice coming through a walkie-talkie, yet the only person within earshot was a deaf mute. Harold's proclamation literally fell on deaf ears. I read of Nick's death before I saw it on ABC, and I'll say when I first read this book, I was sad that Nick died. That image of Rob Lowe was strong in my mind, and he was a sweet and lovable character. I really was sad to see him go. This reading, though, I realized that once they got to Boulder, Nick really did become the redundant personality I'd feared he'd be. There was simply no need for Nick and Stu to be together in the story. It became triple redundancy once Larry became a good guy as well. Three nice white guys in their prime. But it does also put Nick's trials as the true antithesis of Job. For his long-suffering but his belief in God, Job lived an extraordinarily long life. Nick believed in Mother Abigail, but never quite let go of his atheist beliefs, and he was cut down in his prime. But I give kudos to King. It really was time to call the herd, and with this explosion, the herd is indeed called. Be gone, Charles Impening. Adios, Joe or Leo or whatever you're being called today. Ta-ta, Lucy Swan, Larry's underdeveloped wife. Goodbye, Dr. Richardson and veterinarian Ellis. Even Fran. See you later, girl. Understand, I don't mind expansive novels with lots of characters. I rather enjoy them. But each character must be entertaining. They must serve the story and the theme of the book. So many people in the stand just exist because King thought they were needed or likely, and I'm happy to see him go. This overbloated diamond of a story King has written is shedding the excess fat and excess characters. The author is back in control of the novel, and the number of players is siphoned down to a fine point once again. Not that the others die in the explosion, mind you. No, indeed. These characters were never even important enough to kill. In Book 3, King just simply leaves all of Boulder and all the extra characters behind. A few return for the novel's denouement, but with this explosion, every plotline except the main one simply stops. I'm of two minds of this. First, I do think it's bad writing to create characters that go nowhere. An author shouldn't simply indulge in drama that has no importance, resolution, or adds to the theme. I can't even call things like Joe's psychic powers a subplot, because that would imply it has its own resolution. It's not a plot at all. It's just something that happens in the book. The same goes for all of Larry and Fran's snooping in Harold's house, and Harold's possible redemption. Hell, even all the ink wasted describing in detail the difficulties of restoring power to Boulder, none of it matters. When cutting 400 pages, the book would be so much tighter with all of that cut. Let it take place off the page. Just tell us. They got the power back on. So yes, it's poor writing. It's a hard accusation for me to levy at King. He's a man I admire and respect, but it's simply a fact here. King engaged in world building, but in a way that's overly indulgent and dull, and he even knew that. But the other side is this. King got the story back on track and quickly. I'd rather see him jettison these silly side stories as he does and not feel obligated to see them through to conclusion. This is done, however, with a good deal of deus ex machina. Mother Abigail returns from her self-imposed exile. She's starving and weak, and finally, after 106 years, the old woman is dying. But on her deathbed, she has an edict. The four surviving male members of the Boulder Free Zone Committee, those being Stu, Ralph, Glenn, and Larry, are to leave that very day, taking with them only the clothes on their back and walk to see Randall Flagg in Vegas. This, Abigail says, is God's will. And with this command from God, the four men follow those instructions, though they do grab coats and walking shoes, and they also take with them Kojak the dog. From a character development standpoint, I'm frustrated Fran was left behind. Her only purpose in this climax is to give birth. It's a super stereotypical female role, 
and the Fran King it introduced in Book 1 deserved more than to spy on her old friend and then wait for a baby to pop out. Yet, I get that this walk isn't exactly what most OBGYNs would recommend for mothers entering their third trimester. I'm also frustrated that Ralph was one of the four characters to go to Vegas. I'd consider him to the stand what Wedge Antilles is to Star Wars. Sure, Ralph has always been around in Book 2, but King never gave him the background he did to other characters. I never felt any empathy for Ralph. Sending along Fran or Nick or even Mother Abigail herself, hell, even Kojak the dog was given more history than Ralph. The dog's former name was Big Steve, by the way. I don't know that about Ralph. Yet I get that these four members were the last of the council, and as such, important to Boulder. Additionally, they are all really on borrowed time. Had it not been for Mother Abigail and Fran's psychic prowess, they'd have all died with the bomb. Now, I do have a problem with stories that use Desek Machina to drive forward the story. Doing something because it's God's will is a lazy path for an author to use to create motivation. Yet, like the dreams, in The Stand, this works. King is writing a modern American version of a biblical story, and what is the Bible without God? This is a story about big good and big evil, and here these characters need a push. Yes, perhaps the push is coming from King wanting to get on with it and be able to sell this book, but it also may be right that his novel has God once again speak to Abigail and put these fellows on the road. If Desix Machina is this book's sin, I'll forgive it far easier than I'll forgive the weeds in which the plot was tangled for most of book two. And so as these four men begin their walk to the west, book two ends and book three begins. In comparison to the arbitrary end of book one and the beginning of book two, the transition from book two to three is perfect. The status quo is reset. The stage is set for a final showdown. Again, if the stand were sold as three individual novels, at the end of book two, I'd actually be excited for book three. Not because book two was so good, but because now, finally, things were about to get moving again. And it's also good for me to close the book on book two. It's by far the worst of the stand's three sections. Moving into a new book and leaving behind all the bloat that came with book two, I can go with these characters to Vegas, expectations reset, and hope for a climax worthy of this novel. And that's a climax we're going to discuss in the next installment of this podcast series. I'll be back tomorrow, and we'll journey with Ralph, Stu, Larry, and Glenn to Vegas, where King takes some liberties and injects a few ironic plot twists. I hope you'll join me for part five of this review. And until then, my name is Arnie Carvalho, and I do this of my own free will. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Now with more sodomy! Now with more sodomy! Now with more sodomy! Now with more sodomy!